venerable brotherhood of Shakespearean academians, keepers of the Gnostic flame, knights of the holy pentameter, crusaders of the one true scansion. Bring before me the heretic. Off me, get off me! Let me go! Oh. Oh. Order! Order! So... Looks like I angered some Shakespeareans. To be? To be? Or not to be? To be or not to be? That is the question. Oh, no. This is Hamlet to Hamilton, Exploring Verse Drama. I'm your host, Emily C.A. Snyder. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 4, Heresy! Heresies. Heresy. Hi, friends. So, ever since the angry academians chased me at the top of our Deb Viktorov interview a, a few episodes back, Things have been not so great. Order! To begin with, I may have said a little heresy, at least according to some Shakespeareans, calling into question things about verse drama that academics schwoomph together, if you will. Uh, listen to episode three to know what schwoomph means. But, oh, oh, oh sorry, it, it looks like I'm about to take this stand. I'll be back with you in a minute. Order! Order! Bring before us that heretic, Emily C.A. Snyder. Here, Your Honor. Very well. Do you promise to speak in iambic, only iambic, and nothing but iambic? So help you, Bill. No. Oh, no. She's a witch. She's not a witch. She's a heretic. And very well. We hereby convene the hearing of Emily C.A. Snyder on the following charges. Read out the charges. Yes, yes. Yes. First charge is very grave indeed. I understand that you have been heard to say that Shakespeare doesn't matter. Correct. But... (laughs) If I may defend myself, I'd like to call to this stand William Shakespeare. Call to the stand William Shakespeare? Call to the stand William Shakespeare? Yes. No, no, you may not call to the stand William Shakespeare. (laughs) Exactly. Because he's dead. This, This can't be controversial. We'll decide what's controversial or not. And more to the point, we, the noble brethren of the perpetual footnote, can speak for William Shakespeare. But no, that's exactly my point. You've done far too much of speaking for William Shakespeare and doing this about William Shakespeare and doing that about... Look... Give me a minute, and I promise I'll explain. Order! 
Right. So heresy one, Shakespeare's dead. Get over it. (laughs) Okay. So what do I mean by that? Well, the thing is that at least in the English-speaking world, we have a bad history of dealing with reverse drama. What I mean is in the rest of Europe, possibly in the rest of the world, and and it's very exciting, we have an international listenership. So welcome everyone at this point from the U.S. and Australia and Ireland and the U.K. and Northern Ireland and France and Romania, Switzerland, Malaysia, Sweden, South Korea, Russia, India, Germany, and Norway. Yay! And please drop us a line. Tell us what you do with verse drama in your country. But in the English language, we kind of stopped verse drama with Shakespeare, which is not true for the rest of the world. And we attempt, therefore, we've made it an entire (laughs) academic market off of selling Shakespeare merch, essentially. We have, and perhaps some of you are people who have made their entire living off of teaching Shakespeare, writing books about Shakespeare, um, going to conferences and doing your PhD on Shakespeare, writing Shakespeare fanfic, directing Shakespeare, acting in Shakespeare, 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 Shakespeare. And this is not to take anything away from Shakespeare. I myself, in my career, began with Shakespeare at eight years old and, you know, have studied him and loved his work. He is renowned for a reason. And certainly he's paid my taxes 400 years after his death, which is not too shabby a legacy to leave behind. But he's only one person who wrote verse drama. It's the same thing as if we said everyone who composes music must sound like Mozart. And all of music concludes with Mozart. Well, if we did that, we would never get Hamilton. If we did that, we wouldn't even get Les Mis. Music is a form. Verse drama is a form. There is no one who owns or even has mastered to the point of completion any art form. You can try to look like Leonardo da Vinci, And it may be helpful to study how he used paint and varnish. But not everyone has to paint like Leonardo da Vinci. He is not the end-all and be-all of the art. In the same way, Shakespeare is not the end-all, be-all. And more specifically, I want to talk about how we have abused Shakespeare as the end-all, be-all. Because this is the reason why he doesn't matter in some ways. Or I should say, he doesn't actually matter as much as you matter. Let's take some examples. And once more, let's go to the overlap between verse drama and musical theater with a pretty obvious one. So the story of Romeo and Juliet has been told multiple times. Prior to Shakespeare, it was an Italian story, which then Shakespeare picked up, fanfictioned into his own work. And since then, of course, Romeo and Juliet has been performed countless times. I've seen multiple versions where various characters are gender flipped. 
Uh, so you have like a male nurse, you have a female Tybalt, female Mercutio, or it's been queered. So for example, you'll make a little bit more canon, a little bit more textual through the way that you act, that Mercutio and Romeo are queer. Or for example, I saw a queer version, I saw two queer versions where Romeo was a woman in a lesbian relationship with Juliet. This is fairly common. There also was a version that was done oh, several decades ago that used the text and translated, let's say, the Capulets as though they were from Palestine and the Montagues as if they were from Israel. And then the, the prince or anyone who was in between would speak in English. And, and actually, this apparently caused such a fervor that because it was performed in Palestine, Israel, on the border, that uh, that several nights bomb threats were called in and they had to close the show for safety's sake. But which is to say the idea of forbidden loves in whatever context that may mean has been something put on top of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet text quite a lot. And you can do that through performance. You can do that through casting. You can do that, again, through translation of the language. But sometimes it's worth it in order to make more explicit, it's worth it to write your own version of the text. Again, Shakespeare was stealing from someone else's story. It's not like, you know, he has intellectual property rights over it, much less they've expired way by now. But let's take a look at West Side Story. For all its flaws and the way that it doesn't necessarily represent uh, Puerto Rican people in the best possible light. Still, at least for its time, at the time of its writing in the 1960s, the intent was to take the form of Romeo and Juliet, this old, 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 old tale, which Shakespeare happened to be one person who did his version of that tale, and to make explicit the tensions between white people and those recently arrived from Puerto Rico in this particular case, to, in fact, force, hopefully, producers and anyone who would put on the play to provide roles for people of that next descent. And that's why, of course, there is difficulty when, for example, we attempt to have an entirely white cast for West Side Story. Because West Side Story was written explicitly and and differentially. They didn't just use the text of Shakespeare. They had something more to say. They didn't just, they couldn't. Again, this goes back to content dictates form. They had things to say, not about Verona, Italy, but about America and the way that we treat immigrants and the way that those coming to our nation see both the flaws and the successes of (laughs) this attempt at a melting pot. And you need to make that explicit in the text. The problem with making Shakespeare matter for everything is, again, that the man is dead. If you want to talk about America or you want to talk about Brexit 
or you want to talk about COVID, or you want to talk about anything that's happening now, well, you could take any play. Again, you could take a Shakespeare play, I suppose. And heaven knows in 2016, here in New York City, we saw not just the public theater, but there were multiple independent theaters that took Julius Caesar and were like, well, we'll make Caesar Trump, which tells me actually they don't quite know what Julius Caesar is about and how it works. But anyway, um, but what they needed was new text. Shakespeare wasn't writing about our situation. We like to say that Shakespeare was universal, but while he writes to the universal human condition to the best of his abilities, he's still one dude. He's still one dude who wrote what he wrote, and that's all he wrote, and that's all he's ever going to write. And he could only write from his limited perspective which no matter how broad it is, there is no one in the world who can write to everyone's point of view. No matter how empathetic, no matter how woke, no matter how universal, no matter how progressive, no, there is no one who can speak to everyone or to every time. And I think we do Shakespeare a disservice when we have something else that we need to say and we try to take his plays and twist and turn them through costuming and through casting and through like really overworking the text through the way that we deliver the lines to mean something else when what we could do is write a new play. We could write a new play. We could, again, speak directly using this form and speak to the audience now rather than forcing one man to like have spoken for everyone. That's just not fair. It's a relief, I'd say, to say that Shakespeare in some ways doesn't matter. Or perhaps it's more fair to say Shakespeare doesn't always matter. Just in the same way that let's say you just had a breakup, the music you may need may be something very angsty and or something country music or something large and symphonic, and perhaps Mozart's harpsichord isn't going to do it for you. So what we need is you. I want to take a moment and take a real quick look at an article that was just published a few days before the recording of this episode. And hopefully this will illustrate a little bit of what I mean by (laughs) what it means to put too much on Shakespeare. So This is in American Theatre magazine. Uh, For those of you who may not know it, it's a publication of the Theatre Communications Group, and it's a very well-respected theatre magazine, uh, certainly here in America and I believe worldwide. Most recently, on October 29th, 2020, they published an article titled, You Say You Want a Revolution, How to Rebuild the Theatre Post-COVID, Invest in artists and let them do their best work in rep and audiences will follow is the tagline. And it's by Jim Warren. Jim Warren is the former artistic director and founder of the American Shakespeare Center here in Stanton, Virginia, in the United States of America. Now, one of the things that Jim Warren says in this article, and as always, we will link to it for you to be able to read. But one of the things he says further on down, is 
under the section, Who Gets to Work? And I quote at length. Since I have spent the bulk of my career directing Shakespeare, I have been dancing with the issues of gender parity and diversity for a long time. Classical plays have more roles that were originally written for white, male-presenting actors. But in 2020, we should no longer be confined by the patriarchy or whiteness of the playwrights. We have the ability and talent available today to cast any role with actors of any gender and any race. Uh, So I'm going to stop there for a second. I happen to agree, but this is a fairly low bar. What a surprise. People should play roles. Okay, he goes on. Shakespeare companies in particular have at their fingertips a cornucopia of classically trained women actors (sighs) who can often outfight, outdance, and outcharisma a multitude of less talented men who get cast ahead of them simply because they are male. That is true. These women deserve their shot to play any and every role in Shakespeare without being forced to change pronouns wear dresses, or regender the characters. Regendering is an option that has become more common today, but I posit that casting any woman in a character written as a man gives us more bang for the buck if we keep the pronouns as written. As powerful as it may be to see a great female actor play Queen Lear or Lady Hamlet, I think Shakespeare would have written different plays if he were writing these characters as females. I'm going to say that again if you're writing these characters as females. And I find it even more of a triumph to watch a great female actor crawl inside the roles of King Henry V, King Richard III, Prospero, Hamlet, Iago, and all the many others as written. He then goes on to say, And yes, actors who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC, can play any character. I once heard a director say, I want Macbeth to wear a kilt so I can't cast a black actor in that role. What? Some directors also think that if they cast a character like Macduff with a BIPOC actor, then Lady Macduff and young Macduff need to be actors of that same race. Poppycock. Vagini in family groups on stage is no more necessary than it is in real life. We must start walking the walk with folks who are BIPOC. Either we believe in the ideas behind the platitudes or we don't. And he goes on. So, I am not going to attempt to speak for anyone who is Black, Indigenous, or a person of color. I am white. I can, however, speak regarding female actors. (laughs) By the way, if you're on Facebook, please follow Man Who Has It All because it is delightful. And you will get all sorts of memes that that um, will point out why I bristle so much at being called a female actor. I'm an actor, dude. Like, calm down. Anyway, I can speak directly to this. And I would love to hear from the listenership, especially any BIPOC actor who has really spent a lot of their life doing Shakespeare or perhaps has not been able to spend uh, their time doing Shakespeare, whatever your experience is, I would like to know it. And we are going to be bringing on people onto this podcast who can speak to that experience. So I'm not going to speak for them. But perhaps some of the things that I say now will 
resonate for others. Similarly, although he doesn't address it, he doesn't address being uh, LGBTQIA or at all within the queer community. I myself am cisgendered. I am also straight. And so I can't speak uh, as authentically to that experience. Um, and, and there are further diversities, you know, that that were not mentioned, such as size, shape, age, neurodiversity, ability, and so forth. And um, oh, the list just goes on and on. So I would love to again to know what is your specific experience, especially for anyone out there who is an actor, um, whether you've been cast in verse drama or you've been barred from being cast in verse drama, would love to know what your experience is to see where we overlap and to see where we diverge. But I'm going to be speaking from my experience. And in this case, pointing out why focus on Shakespeare is a bad start if you're trying to actually have any sort of diversity. There are loads of diversities that you represent that he can't. This is exciting. This is a feature. It's not a bug. But to speak about what I can speak about, he mentions a few different points. And he says, Shakespeare companies have a cornucopia of classically trained female actors. Um, so let's let's talk about women in the arts. And by women, yes, I do mean everyone who identifies as a woman. So hello, my sisters. And just speaking quickly to anyone uh, who perhaps is afraid or getting nervous that uh, I'm recognizing trans women as women, I just invite you to actually go back to episode three, listen to the Schrumpf episode. And if nothing else, come from a place of charity. Trans women are women. And I would also say that trans women are going to have possibly a different experience in being cast than cis women will. Or we may discover if we actually start speaking about our experiences, some surprising overlaps. So, but when I speak about women in this upcoming section, I'm talking about everyone who is female presenting who identifies as a woman. I also want to acknowledge in this part, as I am going to be talking about gender, that no person is a monolith. If if I guess this heresy boils down to anything, it's that like Shakespeare is not a monolith of the entire human experience. My experience of being a woman is not a monolith of the entire experience of being a woman. A non-binary but female presenting person's experience of gender and therefore of being cast and therefore of portraying roles is going to be different from mine as well, even though we may have the same anatomy. If I were to call upon a a far perhaps more eloquent man than I, I think that C.S. Lewis put it well, which is in The Weight of Glory, he wrote, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. 
All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. So what he's getting at, what hopefully I'm getting at, is that I'm about to speak from my own experience. And I hope that you will speak from your own experience. And that perhaps one of the most charitable and loving things that we can do is to invite people to tell us their experience and to believe that experience and to cherish the fact that we were gifted with that knowledge, that we were honored and trusted to know what other people have gone through. All right, that's a lot of talking. Let's get back to the article. Just a minute, just a minute, just a minute. Yes? We brought you in here to speak about Shakespearean heresies, not to talk about gender. (laughs) Yes, but Shakespeare was writing for all male casts. And Shakespeare, like all verse drama, is performed by real people, and real people have to deal with gender. So do we. Feminist! Heresy! Oh, boy. He's really not going to like this next part. Uh, Your Honor, may I suggest we take a brief recess? Maybe for an advertisement? I'll be back with you in a moment, folks. (sighs) Wish me luck. Shakespeare plays are great, but they can't be everything. At Turn to Flesh Productions, we help to develop new plays in heightened text with vibrant roles for women and those underrepresented in classical art. You can learn more and you can join us by visiting turntoflesh.org. If you're an actor, a director, or writer, feel free to reach out to us on all social media at Turn to Flesh and introduce yourself. If you're an advocate for the arts, why not give us a shout out on that same social media and let the people perhaps at the globe know that there's someone already developing your next favorite play right across the pond. Now, can we please continue without all this talk about gender and sexuality? I can't make any promises, but I can promise to talk about this article. Very well. Proceed. Thank you. So, to return to the article, under the section, Who Gets to Work?, Jim Warren says, that Shakespeare companies in particular have at their fingertips a cornucopia of classically trained women actors who can often outfight, outdance, and outcharisma a multitude of less talented men who get cast ahead of them simply because they are male. Anyone who's ever done educational theater, independent theater, musical theater, anyone who's ever cast a show, there are a million women who are fully trained, fully capable, fully appropriate. And 
there simply aren't enough roles, which is another reason why we need more than Shakespeare, because he was writing for all male casts, which is why he only has three female roles in any given play, and why half the time those female roles are like, just not as good as the male roles. Ophelia and Gertrude barely have anything to say. So if you're in a play with Hamlet and you're Ophelia, okay, you might get top billing for whatever reason, but you've got almost nothing to do. You're not honing your craft. So anyway, and so it is true that because we put such emphasis on Shakespeare, that we are actually systematically keeping women who want to do verse drama out of doing verse drama because we are determined to do only Shakespeare who just friggin' didn't write for women. So what we've been trying to do, rather than saying, oh, we need new plays, which will just open up the casting to begin with, what we frequently have done is, as I mentioned before, we will uh, regender a role has become a very common thing. So for example, when I played Brutus and Julius Caesar, it was a gender-flipped production. So all the major roles were played by women, and then the three female roles were played by men. Um, and it was extremely effective. It was very good. And, and the, the interesting thing is, I can speak rather specifically to, as an actor, <laughs> I've, um, I have played Shakespeare's roles, some of his major roles, Prospero, Brutus, and played them sometimes as male sometimes is like a sort of nebulous human being, but I get the most, the closest to most out of it when I present the human that I'm portraying closer to my own alignments, portraying the human I'm portraying closer to my own, that I am a cisgendered heterosexual woman. So that's why like the gender flip for Brutus worked for me. Whereas if they had wanted an all-female cast for Julius Caesar... Uh, I might not have been the best person to embody someone in a lesbian relationship because I'm not a lesbian and I couldn't speak as honestly to that experience. It should have gone to someone else. But, But I can tell you definitively that since sort of the first half of my acting career, I would get male Shakespeare roles and be asked to play them as male. And it screwed with my brain. It screwed me up because the thing is, when you're an actor, you start believing about yourself the way that people cast you. If people keep casting you as the person to be mocked, or they keep casting you as the fool, or keep casting you as the villain, or keep casting you as the other or keep casting you as magical fairy pixie person, or keep casting you as a child, or keep casting you as a cisgendered woman, as a man, it's really kind of friggin' like it messes with your brain. And you start asking yourself, like, (laughs) who am I? What are they seeing that I'm not? Am I really the fool? Am I really a villain? Am I really other? Am I really not the hero? And and it's not healthy. 
Whereas, at least if you're determined to only do Shakespeare and to only limit yourself to what one man wrote for the entirety of verse drama, um, I have found both as an actor and as a director that so long as you're not doing it as a gimmick, so long as you're not um, cross-gendering just to like try it out or like you play the role as presenting as your gender and your orientation perhaps even, uh, but then like that has no commentary on the play, that's not helpful. But for example, I directed Lear with a female Lear and she played the role as female. Now that doesn't necessarily mean dresses. (laughs) Hint, women can wear dresses or can wear pants. Men can wear skirts or pants. I mean, have you seen Billy Porter? He looks fine in a ball gown, let me tell you. But what I'm getting at is we had an, an a female actor playing Lear. And uh, I mean, first of all, she was one of those actors where as a director, I just more or less got out. I, I cast her and I got out of her way because she had it good to go. And it was more about just making sure the cast was like, all set to support her around her because she was a powerhouse throughout. And by casting her as the mother of these grown women, to have that moment of a mother cursing her own daughter with barrenness, like, that's powerful in a way that having a father curse his daughter with barrenness just has different resonances. When I played, uh, when I played Brutus, going back to that one, And again, I had a female Cassius, and it absolutely added a new and exciting and actually very settled flavor to the tent scene, where frequently I've seen versions where Brutus is a man, Cassius is a woman, and they're like in this sexy love affair. And I find that interesting when you get to the tent scene, but like it it kind of adds too much to it. And then I've seen it, of course, a lot with a bunch of you know, with two men playing the part. And sometimes the like squabbling at each other in the beginning of this scene feels off somehow because it's two men doing it. Um, But it was myself and a friend who played the roles. And when we got to the tent scene, I don't know, there was something just like to be able to to slip back into, I'm a bitchy high schooler (laughs) and I'm going to fling my shoes at you and just be like really ticked off at you. And then there was this lovely moment when the turn happens in the middle of the scene where we just kind of looked at each other and laughed and fell into each other's arms and then got down to the business of, oh, my husband's dead and, oh, the world's falling apart. And so it it felt kind of like female friendships that I've had where sometimes you do just sort of like snipe for a while and then it's okay. Like there's, you know, there, there's something uh, uh, that I've experienced in that in my own gender. And if I'd been trying to quote unquote, play a man, that element of the scene would not have come to light. But the, so I, I, the other thing that I take difficulty with is that he says here, regendering is an option that has become more common today, but I posit that casting any woman in a character written as a man gives us more bang for the buck. If we keep the pronouns as written bull shit. Bullshit. And for rebuttal, please allow me to introduce Ursula K. Le Guin. For those of you who may not know, Ursula K. Le Guin 
is a science fiction author, a novelist, whose work was mostly seen in the 1970s, 1980s. She wrote the Earth Sea novels, which if you've seen the movie miniseries version, it's terrible and not at all representative of the books. She also wrote The Left Hand of Darkness. She's incredibly prolific. Um, I love her collection of essays about writing science fiction. Highly recommend. We'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. But she's got this really interesting article. I'm not entirely sure where it was first published. My pardon's on that, but we will link to a, a sort of photocopy of the article that is available. And it's it's an essay that she wrote entitled Introducing Myself. And she begins this way because, and again, keep in mind that what the former head of the American Shakespeare Center is saying is that I, cisgendered, heterosexual, white, female actor, Emily, might even be good enough to play a white cishead man. Maybe one day I'll be good enough to play a man. Gosh, that'd be so nice. So this is how Ursula K. Le Guin begins introducing myself. And she writes, I am a man. Now, you may think I've made some kind of silly mistake about gender, or maybe that I'm trying to fool you because my first name ends in an A, and I own three bras, and I've been pregnant five times, and other things like that you might have noticed. Little details. But details don't matter. If we have anything to learn from politicians, it's that details don't matter. I am a man, and I want you to believe and accept this as a fact, just as I did for many years. You see, when I was growing up in the time of the wars of the Medes and Persians, and when I went to college just after the Hundred Years' War, and when I was bringing up my children during the Korean, Cold, and Vietnam Wars, there were no women. Women are a very recent invention. I predate the invention of women by decades. Well, if you insist on pedantic accuracy, women have been invented several times in widely varying localities, but the inventors just didn't know how to sell the product. Their distribution techniques were rudimentary and their market research was nil, and so of course the concept just didn't get off the ground. Even with the genius behind it, an invention has to find its market, and it seemed like for a long time the idea of women just didn't make it to the bottom line. So when I was born, there actually were only men. People were men. They all had one pronoun, his pronoun. So that's who I am. I am him. As in, if anybody needs to throw up, he will have to do it in his hat. Or, a writer knows which side of his bread is buttered on. That's me, the writer, him. I am a man. Not maybe a first-rate man. I'm perfectly willing to admit that I may in fact be a kind of second-rate or imitation man, a pretend-a-him. As a him, I am to a genuine male, him as a microwaved fish stick is to a whole-grilled chin-cook salmon. I mean, after all, can I inseminate? Can I belong to the Bohemian Club? Can I run General Motors? Theoretically, I can. But you know where theory gets us. What she's getting at is that, again, in the English language, and for those of you who only speak English, I want you to wrap your mind around this because this is not true in other languages. 
or in other cultures or in other ways of thinking. But in English, just as long as we've had the history of Shakespeare being the only verse playwright, we've had this tendency, this cultural belief, that the default pronoun is him. In the same way that we've had the default be white, the default be straight, the default be cis. And that just is part of stuff that we have to deal with. So if you are a straight, white, cis, heterosexual, male man, hi, thank you for listening this far. No, no one hates you. Unless you're a stupid poo-poo head. If you're a stupid poo-poo head, then straighten yourself out. Then you can come back to class. But the thing is, if the default has been you, then there are just a lot of stories that haven't been told. And what I take exception to in this, this let's only use Shakespeare, in this regendering is an option that has become more common today, but I posit that casting any woman in a character written as a man gives us more bang for the buck if we keep the pronouns as written. Do not tell me I am happier as an actor when I play a man. Do not tell me that is my experience. Do not tell me that one day I will be lucky enough to play a white man. No. Because the other thing about theater is that the text that is written down is only one half of the text. The other half of the text is what we perform on top of it. If I perform Hamlet in my own body, in my own person, then Hamlet at the time of my performance is a white, fat, older, (laughs) cishet woman. That's who Hamlet is. And my pronoun is she. And that is what you will use. And that's fair game. And I fully expect, really, with my own plays, I want that to be the case. I want someone to take Cupid and to say, I embody Cupid. These are my identifiers. This is what I'm playing. And that's okay. That's the game of theater. We'll be getting to that later. That's a slightly later heresy. But what I'm getting at is that we need text that perhaps, rather than having to change someone else's words, begins with, hello, this is who I am. This is a role written for someone that Shakespeare didn't write for. Shakespeare doesn't have to be stretched. Shakespeare is not the end-all, be-all. There are other people who have things to say and things to write, and those things are beautiful and glorious and needed and should not be silenced. And if you are doing nothing but Shakespeare and trying to repurpose him seven ways to Sunday and silencing those beautiful writers, then you are doing evil. You are doing evil. Now, What are some things that we can do? Well, part of it is let Shakespeare be just one in the canon. Someone who does verse drama very well, and you do Shakespeare's plays when you want to do what the text actually inspires in you, rather than you sort of taking the text and pulling it away. Second, 
I was distressed to hear there was, uh, like, we basically need to make them less prominent. We need instead, if we're interested in verse drama, to make the tools of verse drama prominent. If we want to study it, we should study how it works, which is going to be our next episode, the tool boudoir. And that is something that we can teach. English teachers, if you want to teach, teach the tools of writing verse in the same way that you teach sentence structure. And what you're going to be teaching is essentially schwumpf structure. If you don't know what schwumpf is, either look at our glossary on hamlettohamilton.com or listen to episode three. But there's this story that I want to leave you with at the end of this particular section, the end of this little heresy, and then I promise I'll come back and we'll start in on the next heresy. Woo, fun. But I was speaking with an educator uh, who worked at one of the many Shakespeare companies in uh, America. And we were swapping stories about different curriculums that we've used in terms of teaching verse drama. And this person mentioned that one of the exercises that they do in order to increase diversity was, and I don't remember the exact specifics, but it was something like, uh, I think they went into like a, a school that was for all women. And in this case, for all Muslim girls, which is very cool. And they were going to teach Shakespeare. Instead of teaching verse drama, they were going to teach Shakespeare. Okay, so we've begun already by saying this dead guy is the only person that matters. And no matter how you cut it, that's a bad foundation to start with. It then was compounded in this way. What they did was they took one of his plays, doesn't matter which, and essentially had the students take all the words in a scene or perhaps every word within the play was fair game. And you were sort of supposed to do, you know, that poetry magnets where you've got different words and you can put them in whatever order you want. So they could take whole sentences. They could take soliloquies. They could take just words that he used and mix them up and then put them together to make a new play. And doesn't that sound delightful? Except Shakespeare never used the word hijab. There are so many words that Shakespeare never used that these Muslim girls are going to need. Words that Shakespeare had no access to that these young women did. And again, you're saying you're beginning by silencing and limiting and saying to these young, bright minds, the very words you choose are of less importance than the words he chose. And that's wrong. That's wrong. That is wrong. It is wrong. It is wrong. It is wrong. And the thing is, quite often as a female actor, for example, when I played Isabella in Measure for Measure, there are words that I meant to say, that I wanted to go up to Bill 400 years in the past and be like, these are not the words I need, dude. You have written woman wrong. (laughs) You've written woman wrong. For example, this. This is Measure for Measure. And as always, we will make sure that we have the text for you. It's from Act 2, Scene 4. This is the famous speech right after Angelo, who seems so holy, threatens Isabella with 
essentially that she needs to concede to her own rape. Um, so she was just in a, a terrible situation. And, uh, you know, she's saying, look, I'll never sleep with you people. It, I'll tell everyone how terrible you are. And he's like, yeah, no one's going to believe you. I've got a great reputation. And then, as he says, in fact, as for you, say what you can. My faults or ways you're true. Then he leaves. And then these were the words I was supposed to say. To whom should I complain? Did I tell this? Who would believe me? That's good. That's good. I always wanted to say those words. You're shaky. You've just been assaulted. There is no me too for another couple hundred years. To whom should I complain? Did I tell this? Who would believe me? And then it goes on this way. I'll give you a few lines. Let's go back. To whom should I complain? Did I tell this? Who would believe me? Oh, perilous mouths that bear in them one and the selfsame tongue, either of condemnation or of proof, bidding the law make curtsy to their will, hooking both right and wrong to the appetite to follow as it draws. No, 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 Bill, no, nope, you're wrong. No, 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 no. Perilous mouths, what the ever-loving, oh, my stars, no, no. No one in the world has ever wanted to say, oh, perilous mouths, immediately after being threatened with their own rape. Like, that is not what you say, no. And you don't necessarily go to an intellectual place talking about, oh, yes, well, morality, yada, yada, yada. He wasn't writing a woman. He was not writing to the universal experience. He was not writing in a human way with that. And I remember when I was working on that speech, what I wanted to start saying was, is his reputation of greater worth than mine? And then follow down that question. Is his reputation of greater worth than mine? But I didn't have those words. If I wanted those words, the only way to get the words that I so desperately needed is if Shakespeare doesn't matter. Are you a patron of the arts? Are you looking for a revolution in a diversity of voices? Then come join us over at patreon.com slash Hamlet to Hamilton, and you can help support this podcast, which in turn helps support a lot of great artists. At different levels, there are different rewards, including being a producer and having your name in the credits, so keep an ear out for that later on as well as opportunities to join the Super Secret Facebook group, wherein we've been having a very interesting discussion lately about how we ought to show Scansion, since that'll be coming up next episode. You'll also have access to bonus episodes, and you'll have the warm glow of knowing that you're sticking it to those old men with the gavels and the... <sighs> Time for the trial. All rise. We are back in session and ready to pass judgment. Uh, but I'm not finished yet. You certainly are. And in the case of Snyder v. Shakespeare, we come down on the side that Shakespeare is far superior to everyone in the world. <laughs> but that you might have a point about 
letting in other players. (laughs) Thank you. Therefore, our judgment is... Uh, Just a minute, Your Honor. What's that? Well, I haven't argued all my heresies. You have more? (laughs) Probably. Lots. But the thing is, I hold you, angry academians, in contempt of court. Yes, you, brethren of the eternal footnote, soothsayers of the bard, I condemn you. Jacques. <gasps> Look here, miss. We were ready to let you go and concede that we haven't been as great with diversity as we could be. Thank you. So I suggest you take your minor victory and be on your grateful way. If I can call to the stand William Shakespeare... Oh, for heaven's sake! We've already said he's dead, and if you must speak about him, we will speak for him. <laughs> J'accuse. Pardon me? If you'll allow me, as you said, Shakespeare's dead, so he can't speak for himself, but you're determined to speak for him? Well, if you'll allow me, I'd like to start by speaking about Galileo. So Galileo was an Italian astronomer, physicist, engineer, a polymath, as it says on his Wikipedia page, who lived in the 1560s to the 1640s, actually exactly the same time, roundabout, as Shakespeare himself, which is kind of cool. And he's rather famously known for helping to really popularize heliocentrism which means that the the understanding that the Earth orbits around the sun, whereas previously it was generally widely believed that the sun orbited around the Earth and that all the stars orbited around the Earth. Now, Galileo was not the first person to discover this, but he was one of the more vocal proponents, in fact, one of the more vocal heretics. And the Catholic Church, since again, He is Italian, so that was the primary religion in his area. The Catholic Church kept telling him, will you please be quiet about this? Now, the curious thing is that the Catholic Church, as the authority and frequently as the patron of the sciences as well as the arts, they already knew about heliocentrism. They already knew that the earth actually orbited around the sun rather than the other way around. But the thing is that various theologians in the Catholic Church prior to that point had gone and kind of made a second theology, really kind of made a separate poetry, all about, well, if the earth is the center of the universe, that's why God came down. Again, this is the Catholic Church, Catholic theology. That's why God came down as man, as Jesus to us. And this shows that we are the center of his universe. And essentially, they built up all this mythology around a flawed scientific theory that wasn't true, that wasn't fact. They built up all this poetry and called it theology, called it, practically called it dogma, which is uh, dogma is stuff that you have to believe. 
as opposed to doctrine, which is stuff you probably should believe, as opposed to popular stuff that people say that sounds about right and so people believe. And uh, people were treating this poetry, which wasn't doctrine, which wasn't dogma, but they were treating it like as if it was dogma, as if it was as central to theology as the idea of a God existing whatsoever. And so the Catholic Church was upset at Galileo actually because it ricocheted into their poetry. And so they kind of wanted to be in charge of the narrative. I think perhaps, you know, part of their reasoning was like, if we just start talking about this, people have so bought into the poetry of this theology that some people might lose their faith. It was probably way more about control because these things often are. But I think it's important for us to realize that the Shakespeare machine in the English-speaking world is behaving a lot like the Catholic Church did to Galileo. Now, again, Galileo, apparently kind of a jerk of a man. So I'm not defending him as a human being. Sounds like sounds like he was a problematic person. But he also wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong championing the science. And the Catholic Church wasn't right in suppressing the science because, in point of fact, if your faith is based on something as shaky as where the earth is in relation to the sun, and it isn't based instead on God— then what sort of faith do you have at all, really? The two things, I mean, they to go back to schwumpf, they schwumpfed together the idea that the earth must be in the center and something about human relationship to God. And those things are separate. And so, so in the same way, the Shakespeare monolith has actually schwumpfed together different poetry on top of the various tools that can be used when writing verse drama. So let's go through a few of them, and they're not going to be in any particular order. But probably a good one to start with is how academics, how Shakespeareans, tend to approach iambic pentameter blank verse. So some of the myths, some of the poetry, some of the putting the earth in the center of the universe that they have done is, for example, saying that the only way to write verse drama is if you write an iambic pentameter. Well, that's simply not true. To begin with, the Greeks wrote their verse in a variety of different rhythms and beats, which is where, in fact, we get the word I am from. And all an I am is just unstressed, stressed. Uh, if we were to look at uh, French verse drama, you have what's known as an Alexandrine or a heroic, or we've got all these different names for it, but basically it's just lines of sextameter, or rather, sorry, of hexameter. I like to call it sextameter because I find it to be passionate and sexy when you have six repeated strong beats. But essentially they write it in six rather than writing it in five, which is pentameter. I'm sure that throughout the rest of the world, different rhythms are used. But 
So the academics come back and say, iambic pentameter is the way that English speakers actually speak. Well, okay, so let's take a look at the English language and let's look at English language verse drama. Well, a few things. One, the earlier medieval drama that we have in English tends to be in tetrameter, which is four strong beats. And you can see that even in Shakespeare's own work, whenever he tries to sound like the previous generation, he goes into tetrameter. And we see that like in Macbeth with uh, Hecate. We see that a lot with the fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream. And he's doing that to evoke the English tradition, which is tetrameter. And if you were to look at the Wakefield master, who was an unknown but very easy to spot the the work that they did because they wrote a couple of the medieval plays. They created their own like rhythm pattern entirely, which is like, I have to look at it again, but I think it's like four lines of rhymed pentameter and then a line of monometer and then two lines of rhymed, uh, I think it's tetrameter or trimeter, and then one line of like dimeter slash trimeter that rhymes with line five. Like they did this whole system, right? And that's in English and it uses a different rhythm and beat pattern in English. So, all right, that's not iambic pentameter, but in order to maintain their hold on this sort of Shakespeare-centric universe, iambic pentameter-centric universe, what they do is they say, ah, but you understand, all those previous plays suck. Now, that's quite a thing to say, but all right. And they say, in fact, it wasn't until the invention of iambic pentameter blank verse that the heavens opened up and the true form of speaking in English was understood. All right, so if that's true, uh, then one of the things that they claim is that the whole of English naturally falls into iams. Okay, what's an iam again? An iam, and we'll be talking way more about this next time with the tool boudoir, but an iam is just uh, a rhythm of an unstressed syllable and a stressed syllable. So it's badum. So if you were to do pentameter, that's five strong beats, pent five, it'd be badum, 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 badum. All right. But soft or light through yonder window breaks. There you go. That's iambic pentameter. So again, if this is how English is, then I should be able to open up any book I have here and every single thing should at least be, if not in pentameter, should at least be iams. And I actually have here beside me Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. So what the hey, I'll open it up. Let's see what it says, how it starts. Okay. Um, here is the first sentence. The two men appeared out of nowhere. Uh-oh, we're in danger already. The two men appeared out of nowhere. Ooh, the two men. 
That is three syllables to begin with on the first strong beat. That actually is an infrabrock. An infrabrock is the rhythm of unstressed, stressed, unstressed. Ba-dum-bum. You can hear it. The two men. And then it's appeared out. There's another amphibrock of nowhere. Oh, shoot. It's an amphibrochic trimeter. A few yards apart. No, there's an IM. The word apart is an IM. In the narrow. Ooh, ooh. We've got a four-syllable beat on that one. I have to always look that one up. It's got a very funky name. And then moonlit. That's a trochee. That's stressed, unstressed. Lane. Actually, moonlit lane. So it's three syllables. I have to go to my little cheat sheet because I can never remember three syllables. It's a dactyl. Strong uh, and then unstressed, unstressed. Ba, ba, ba. So we have had thus far in this first sentence of English, one I am. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> oh, my stars. Okay, okay. But but we know that there are problems with J.K. Rowling. So let's let's look at the New York Times. And just because uh, I've spoken a lot about some sensitive issues today, let's find an article headline that uh, is not political, not religious, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let's see. This is October 5th, 2020. And here's a headline that says, Ancient Remains in Peru Reveal Young Female Big Game Hunter. So it begins with ancient, which is a trochee. Stressed, unstressed. Bada. Remains. Okay, that's an I am. In Peru, in Baba, that's a three. And I have to look at my little cheat sheet. And I didn't write it down which one it is. <laughs> oh, no, here it is. It's Bacchus. It's unstressed, stressed, stressed. In Peru, well, you could maybe make an argument that it's uh, unstressed, unstressed, stressed. That would be an antifest. Da da da. In Peru, reveal. Ooh, and I am again, young female. Oh, that is possibly, let's see. That is an anti-Bacchus, dum-dum-da, young female, big game, another trochee. Hunter, another trochee. What do we have? One I am in that? So all I'm getting at, friends, is, again, the Shakespearean academians have said, I am big. Pentameter, I am Badam, is the entirety of English speech. I don't even know why we have dactyls and trochees and amphibracts and any of these other dactyls and things. Matter of fact, in preparation for this, I was looking at my poet's glossary, this big old book that I have on the side here, and I was looking up what they said about other types of rhythms. And uh, (laughs) they would give it so little. They'd be like, ah, this is what it means, but like, you never use it. Which is, which is just dumb. And which is limiting. Which is limiting. So, thing, mythology number one, that the whole of English revolves around the almighty I am. Matter of fact, take the sentence I just said. Go ahead and see how many stresses it has, how you would scan it out. Again, if you don't know what these words mean, we'll be talking about it all next time. But 
It's clearly untrue. We do not normally speak in iams. And in fact, if we think again about music, people are going to be speaking in all sorts of different rhythms, just as people might be singing in all sorts of different keys, in all sorts of different time signatures. In fact, and I've seen a lot of people like boast about this, but they'll say, I have written in perfect iambic pentameter. And when I read that, having read a lot of quote-unquote perfect iambic pentameter, which is sent to me, and we're going to be talking a lot about this, friend, so strap in. Not this episode, but future episodes. But it's kind of like boasting that you have only ever written music in the key of C, using quarter notes in 4-4 time, and in fact only using the notes in the key of C, and not even using the other relative chords that would be within the family of the key of C, but only using C, E, and G, which, for those of you who don't know music, I will now sing to you a song that is the equivalent of perfect iambic pentameter. Mm, it would go like this. If you want to get fancy, I suppose you could go... Sometimes you might go la 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 and for this for three hours. No variations. No variations. So it's not as impressive as you think to say you have written in strict iambic pentameter and in future episodes. We will look at pieces of text that were written in the perfect iambic pentameter and are absolutely unplayable as drama. So no, no, in in, in point of fact, iambic pentameter is just one tool that you can use well or use poorly. And doing it with no variation whatsoever only tells me that you probably don't know the difference between one character and another. And so unless you're doing a world that is is a monolith, what are you doing if you're writing in quote-unquote perfect iambic pentameter? More to the point, you are conflating several things when we're talking about iambic pentameter. So you have this mythology, right, that Shakespeareans say, ah, yes, Uh, well, the I am. The I am is like a heartbeat, but um, but um, but um. But when I hear an I am, I don't feel that way at all. I feel oppressed, frankly. I hear but um, but um, but um. Someone else might hear skipping, but um, but um, but um, but um. Someone else might hear anxiety, but um, but um, but um, but um. <laughs> so we have again swooped this this poetry, this mythology, this theology onto what an I am is, and that's stupid. Y'all are stupid. That's just dumb. (laughs) All you can say about an I am is that it is the rhythm of unstressed, stressed. And then what's far more interesting, just like everything I hope you're getting from this episode, what's far more interesting is what the person who is writing in this rhythm, if they decide to write in rhythm, they might decide to write in a variety of rhythms, but let's say they're using one rhythm in repetition. Um, What does the playwright feel about that? What are they trying to convey? 
And then what does the person who's interpreting that work feel like? What are they going to convey further? What are they going to foie out? And that's where the magic happens. So we're going to be doing all sorts of exercises next time to help you figure out how you feel about various rhythmic patterns, how you feel about various beats, how you feel about repetition or non-repetition, how you feel about rhyme or non-rhyme for separate things that we schwoomf together as iambic pentameter or blank verse, as well as schwoomfing onto it that English is in all iams, which we've just disproved, or that speaking in perfect iambic pentameter means that you'll feel a heartbeat. You might not. Or that speaking in perfect iambic pentameter somehow will magically make your verse good. I promise in future episodes, I will completely address that. But in the meantime, I can tell you it doesn't. And lastly, we have this thought again that iambic pentameter, we sometimes teach, and I'm looking at you, English teachers, who I hope know better, is we tell people that iambic pentameter or that blank verse or that the proper way to write verse drama is to count to 10. Now, the thing is, if you have decided that iambic pentameter is the rhythm and the beat combined that your character speaks in, then yes, the math will lead to 10 syllables. But again, not everyone is going to speak in pentameter. Not everyone's going to speak in repetition. Not not everyone's going to speak in iams. If you speak in amphibrox, it'll be 15 syllables long. And so there's a great danger. And I've seen, I've seen sort of two varieties of text cross my desk most frequently. One is that it is perfect iambic pentameter. And usually that means that all the lines are end stopped, meaning that like the thought ends at the end of the line. But then the other half are trying to be perfect pentameter, but really what they've just done is they've put a line break when there's 10 syllables. And it is, it's, it's a mess. It's, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess. And again, it, it's not playable. And there's an interesting piece that I want to take a moment to look at some new verse text and show how this playwright had a really good, solid verse, but then they were told to put a line break whenever it was 10 syllables. And, um, that kind of messed up their verse. So let's take a quick look at the case of The Mother of God Visits Hell by Daniel Gaetan. So this piece has been around for a little bit over a decade now, or at least has been in publication. It's had a few performances. And one thing that's important to note is that uh, apparently it was written in rhyming couplets. Now, generally speaking, you put the line break on the rhyme for the rhyming couplets. Can there be variations? The answer is there could always be variations, right? I mean, if this podcast is about anything, if this episode is about anything, it's that variation and diversity are generally going to be way more interesting than monoliths. So in this case, he did it in rhyming couplets. But instead of doing the line break on the rhyme, he put the line break at every 10 syllables. We're going to be taking a look at Act 1, Scene 2, and I'm going to read it twice. The first time I'm going to read it 
uh, probably the way that he heard it and probably the way that his actors played it. Because frequently what happens is when the playwright has been guided poorly about how to write verse drama, and by guided poorly, generally what I mean is that they have written very playable stuff, very good characterization, very good plot, it's good drama, but the verse, generally speaking, they've been asked or or they believe they've been taught that they have to put the line break at 10. And so usually what happens is that the actor just kind of ignores the verse and like fixes their verse for them on the fly and kind of gets their music properly, uh, even though the playwright essentially didn't write out the music of their line properly. And again, I attribute this not so much to a failing of the playwright, but to a failing of how we have taught verse playwrights. So again, I'm looking at you, academians. You have not actually examined the tool boudoir. You have not actually examined verse drama. You have said, this is what Shakespeare does. This is how Shakespeare uses the tools. Therefore, all this mythology and the world revolves around Shakespeare and there is no sun or whatever it may be. And you've come up with some bad theology that has led playwrights astray. And man, then you wonder why there are no good verse playwrights or whatever. And it's like, well, you taught them wrong to begin with. (laughs) So let's set the record straight. Anyway, so I'm going to read it the first time the way he probably heard it. And then I'm going to read it the way he wrote it. Here we go. Mother of God visits hell, Daniel Gaetan, act one, scene two, the underworld. Uh, And this is about um, St. Michael the Archangel and the Virgin Mary and Satan. Uh, It was inspired by a Dostoevsky short story. And um, so content dictates form. This should absolutely be in verse. (laughs) That makes sense. We've passed the first test. And he's, again, I'm going to read it now with his music on his rhyming couplets. Mary. Hello, is anybody here? Michael. Nay, step behind me quickly, lady, for I smell Beelzebub's near. Satan. Well, speak the devil's name, they say, and soon he shall appear, milady. Michael. Stay, vouchsafe to keep thy distance. Satan. What? And harm the Holy Virgin? Why, I'd sooner sell my soul. Mary. To whom? Satan. Myself, of course. Hmm. <laughs> Mary. Why then, I pray thee gets a bargain for a soul as venerable as thine. T'would be a shame to cheat thyself. Don't go below a dime. Satan. Dost find me so expensive, I concur. In truth, I would have bartered for some frankincense and myrrh. But hold thy sword, I do abate. Methinks he overcompensates. Nay, please, resheathe, I mean no harm, tis just a spot of jest. Why comest thou so duly armed unto my address? Okay, and we'll stop there. Now, very clever listeners will hear that there's no actually repeated meter, and we'll be looking at this closer in a second. Um, But you've got some really interesting character work that's already going on. The only rhyme I couldn't quite figure out was how myself, of course, mm -hmm, um, what it it exactly is supposed to rhyme with, but that might be on me. However, again, this playwright was told that in order to be taken seriously as a verse dramatist, in order to do verse drama right, you have to cut the line at 10. 
this mythology we've made up because of the almighty iambic pentameter. Even though this guy's not writing an iambic pentameter, but okay. Uh, And so this is what he wrote. This is how he wrote it. And you know the drill by now, if you've been listening, is that uh, I'm going to take a big breath wherever he put a line break. Here we go. Mary. Hello, is anybody here? Michael. Nay, step behind me quickly, lady, for I smell. Beelzebub is near. Satan will speak the devil's name, they say, and soon he shall appear. Milady. Michael. Stay, vouchsafe to keep thy distance. Satan. What? And harm the Holy Virgin? Why? I'd sooner sell my soul. Mary. To whom? Satan. Myself. Of course. <laughs> Mary. Why then, I pray thee, gets a bargain for a soul as venerable as thine t'would be ashamed to cheat thyself. Don't go below a dime. Satan, dost find me so expensive? I concur. In troth, I would have bartered for some frankincense and myrrh. But hold thy sword, I do abate. Methinks he overcompensates. Nay, please, Rashid, I mean no harm. Tis just a spot of jest. Why comest thou so duly armed unto my address? Okay, so you can immediately hear how the way that he chopped it at 10 actually broke up the music and the melody of his rhyming couplets. And therefore, how if we teach that, we are doing a disservice to people who are writing some interesting text. If you're to take a look at uh, Satan's speech here, you have, dost find me so expensive, I concur, is the music that he hears. He wrote it, dost find me so expensive, I concur, in troth I would. Okay. I'm not going to worry too much about whether it's an IMs. Um, I scanned this before. He does tend to like force the IMs. Um, if I were to actually speak with him as a playwright, I would I would suggest to him, don't worry so much about like forcing an IM. Let your characters be in whatever jazz rhythms they're in. But what I would point out to him is that he's actually writing in sort of unrepeated beat rhyming couplets. What do I mean by that? So let's take a look. Let's examine how many beats are on each rhymed line. Not looking at where he counted to 10 and put a line break, but looking at where the line break actually ought to be on the rhyme. So... Dost find me so expensive, I concur. Would actually be a perfect line of perfect iambic pentameter if he had not put a line break after the word so. And then, in troth, I would have bartered for some frankincense and myrrh is actually seven strong beats. So it's in septameter for that line. And that's fine. Again, we have this such slavish like sense that if it's not in pentameter, that we're doing it wrong. But as you heard, when I read it in the pentameter that he sort of forced it into, um, it it didn't help anything. So it's fine that the next line is seven syllable or seven feet, I should say, seven strong beats long. Then the next line would be, but hold thy sword, I do abate. That's tetrameter four. Methinks he overcompensates. That's another four. Why not? Why not? Why shouldn't it be five, seven, four, four? Like, 
why should Satan, the character, follow the rules? Are you kidding me? Of course he should be mucking about with, I'm just going to keep varying my beat. You can't catch me. What are you talking about? Like, (laughs) that's appropriate to his character. And the weird thing is, that's what the playwright did. But then he went and he cut it uh, every 10 syllables because that's what he was told to do. Because that's the the theology he was told is that pentameter is this like magic secret sigil that's going to secretly make things better. And my guess is actually, if he were to revise this play again, which he may want to, he may not want to. I have no idea where he's at in the writing uh, versus sort of abandoning process. As Picasso said, no artist finished, it's just abandoned. But um, what I would encourage him to do is instead to cut all his lines on the rhyme of the rhyming couplet because it's going to help the actors know what the actual rhyming couplets are because that is appropriate to the way that he's writing his piece. And then not to worry about whether it's an IMs, not to worry about whether it's metered. Um, if he wants to, then go back and say, like, is Jesus in a strict meter, perhaps? Is he in a strict repeated rhythm? Is he in a strict repeated verse? Same thing for Mary. Same thing for St. Michael the Archangel. Is Satan? What am I saying about these characters? What am I saying about this world? And I bet you he would find if you just went back and put the line breaks on every rhyme rather than on the 10th syllable with this false theology he's been given. I find it really amusing, of course, that we're looking at a uh, a, a text that sort of looks into um, like a Christian myth <laughs> as we're talking in this episode about heresies. Uh, it tickles me pink. Anyway, uh, I bet you he would find some really interesting things that he already did as a playwright that he already did without knowing it. And then he kind of went and it looks like he tried to clean it up to make it look what you damn academians have said is acceptable and is perfect. Which brings me to one of my last pieces is like, you know what, academics? You need to get on the stage and start acting some of this stuff because some of your theories don't hold water in regards to performance. I could talk about a lot of different things to talk about some of them very briefly in the time that we have left. So for example, academics go really hard on the idea of a feminine line ending. And all a feminine line ending is, is that the last syllable isn't stressed. And they say, therefore, they call it feminine because they feel that it is a weak line ending. And just like saying that an I am always feels like a heartbeat, that's not true. So let's say it's an unstressed ending. Well, it might be because it's a trochee, meaning it's stressed, unstressed. And so you're just writing in a different rhythm. So of course, every last syllable is going to be unstressed. Uh, it might be, though, that you're aiming not so much for a sense of weakness, but perhaps you feel that it, to end on an unstressed syllable is like a conspiracy. Or maybe you find it really sexy. Or maybe you find it really confused. Or maybe you find it's very angry and I'm just not going (laughs) to... It has nothing to do with gender. This is the weird thing. 
like, you academics have put gender on the wrong stuff. You've put it... uh, (laughs) You're conflating femininity with weakness to begin with. I'm sorry, but who's pushing babies out of their bottom? Anyway. Sure, sure, yeah. But you're also presuming that unstressed means weak, which, frankly, is a little capitalist. Um... You know, I'm in like, hey, mom, I'm on stressed. I'm on an island. I am having a daiquiri. Like, that sounds great. Are you kidding me? Maybe to end on an unstressed syllable is to end on happiness and relief. But again, we say that if there's a feminine ending, which I would suggest there is no such thing as a feminine or even a weak ending, line ending, is just Some lines end on stressed syllables. Some lines end on unstressed syllables. You, the writer, will have different opinions about what you feel about that. You, the writer, might have no opinion. It might just be how the grammar worked. For example, in Midsummer Night's Dream, you have trochaic tetrometer with if we shadows have offended, stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed. And If you were determined to end it strong because you're determined that Puck must be played as a male and male equals strength or something, then you'd say, if we shadows have a fend, think but this and all is mend. And now you're just doing Borat. (laughs) So it's a choice. It's a choice, I guess. But which is to say sometimes like to be or not to be, that is a question. It what do you want me to do? To be or not to be? That is the quest. Like, question in English just ends on an unstressed syllable. Like, maybe it doesn't mean anything other than, like, that's English. And again, as we go back to it, not all English is an I am's. Um, We have something called an epic sejora, which I hate that as well. And I argue there's no such thing as an epic sejora. I would suggest sometimes a line, if you're using repeated um, beats and repeated uh, rhythms, that sometimes like the first half of the line might be in iams and the second half of the line might be in trochees. And uh, they tend to call that an epic sejura. A sejura is like a little break in the middle of the line. And well, it might not be epic. It could be the oppressive sejura. It could be the desperate seizure because you're going from ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum and feeling very calmly to be like, ba-dum, ba-dum, which is the trochies, right? Uh, it could be the passionate seizure. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. I'm bored with I am's to ba-dum, ba-dum. <laughs> Do you see what I'm getting at? There's no reason to call it epic seizure. What we could call it perhaps is sometimes use a seizure for a reversal of your rhythm, that would be true. Um, so we could call it a reversal sejura. Uh, we could say it's a trochaic sejura. It's an iambic sejura. It's an amphibrachic sejura. Like, you know, I mean, we put, we have schwumpfed together again all this poetry on something that is value neutral. And we've schwumpfed it all because they call it an epic seizure because, again, they feel that it's masculine. They're putting gender where gender does not belong. And then, and again, they're saying, if you're lucky, you can be a guy and you can be epic and strong. And (sighs) 
and I'm the one who's speaking heresies? Like, come on, dude. But the thing is, I sometimes have to wonder if people who study Shakespeare in a purely academic sense, if they've ever played Shakespeare, if they've ever played, and not just with Shakespeare, played with verse drama, they'll say things like a line of six strong beats, an Alexandrian or heroic line is boring and dull as if that were gospel. When again, I find, I call it sextameter because I find it long and sexy and passionate and future historians. Yeah. I find that without meaning to, I'll slip into sextameter whenever like I'm overflowing with emotion. I don't get bored. And yet academics will say an Alexandrian hexameter is dull. It's too much. Well, that's not how I experience it. So I'm sorry that's how you experience it, but like that's not what I experience. And again, all we can say definitively is it's six strong beats. It's neither good nor bad, but your thinking has made it so. And if we're going to go on, there is way more between heaven and earth than is dreamt of in Shakespeare's philosophy. But the thing is, I wonder if the people who teach Shakespeare as a monolith, all the angry academians, all the people that have made a living off of writing books about Shakespeare and teaching programs about Shakespeare and doing papers on Shakespeare and doing PhDs on Shakespeare, if all the people at RADA and all the people at Lambda and all the people at the RSC and all the people at the ASC and at Oregon Shakespeare Festival and all over, all over, all over, all over. Those of you who treat Shakespeare as words on a page and come up with all these theories, do you even know how to read verse drama? Do you even know what good, playable, exciting, passionate, wonderful verse drama looks like? Have you inhabited any verse drama that isn't Shakespeare? Have you sat in the silences that are written by modern verse playwrights? Have you had to deal with people who count to 10 and what that actually does to you as an actor? Have you dealt with verse that is perfect iambic pentameter and just, again, what that oppresses you as an actor? Have you dealt with stuff that looks irregular and then when you perform it is so full of life? Do you even know what good verse drama is? Or have you gotten yourself so Shakespeare-centric that just like the people that believed that the earth was the center of the universe, you've missed the entire world. Hamlet to Hamilton is a special project of Turn to Flesh Productions Audio Division. Turn to Flesh is a theater company in New York City that develops new plays in heightened text with vibrant roles for women and those underrepresented in classical art. In other words, we create new Shakespeare plays 
for everybody Shakespeare didn't write for. Hamlet to Hamilton is hosted by Emily C.A. Snyder, with audio engineering and sound design by Colin Kovarik. Additional voices also by Colin Kovarik. And original music by Taylor Benson. Special thanks to our patron, Madeline Farley, for helping to produce this episode. Special thanks to Esther Williamson for transcripts. To learn more about us or to support the podcast, visit hamlettohamilton.com or sign up to become a monthly patron by visiting patreon.com backslash hamlettohamilton. Other ways to support include leaving us a great review on Apple Podcasts or spreading the word about us with the hashtag Hamlet to Hamilton or H2H using the numeral two in between. Are you a verse playwright, an educator, an actor, an interdimensional space traveler with a love of blank verse? Well, we want to hear from you. You can join the Turn to Flesh community and the community of Hamlet to Hamilton by finding us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram at Hamlet to Hamilton or at Turn to Flesh. Thank you for joining us, dear friends, for all things true, good, beautiful, and frequently in verse. <laughs>